Well, as you know, today is also the day that we have an opportunity as a church family to vote on our name change from Glenwood Baptist Church to LifeBridge Baptist Church. And so if you are a member of our church, I hope and invite and encourage you to stay after the worship service and to make your way over to the Student Life Center. And uh, around 12.15, we'll gather together over there for a congregational vote. Shouldn't take a, a long time, and, uh, and so I, I want to encourage you to do that. As you know, we've been, uh, this is something we've been praying about for the last four weeks. It's something that we presented to you as a church family four weeks ago in a message when we presented the name LifeBridge. And we've had uh, various members of our leadership council also give testimony of why they support this name change. And so I want to ask Randy to come on up, and he's going to give his testimony for this as well. Thank you, Pastor Bruce. You know, uh, we have this uh, poster that's always right up on our church. It reminds us of our purpose and what we have as a mission here at our church. And even though we are obviously going to be voting this morning for a new uh, name for our church with Life Bridge doesn't mean that our purpose and our mission does not change uh, whatsoever. I always like to be reminded that uh, always our mission and purpose is that we want to grow in Christ and we want others to grow in Christ. We want to show Christ. We also want to uh, really not only show Christ but also go to where people that need to know the Lord need to know who Jesus Christ is. And even though we look at a, at a name change, we're not looking at a change in our purpose and our mission of who we are as a local church. Well, with that being said, uh, it's always wonderful when we take that focus and mission and we look at the name Life Bridge and we look at really our opportunities for inviting people to come to our church. And I can remember uh, really uh, inviting visitors to come to our church. I, I work out in Overland Park, Kansas, which sometimes seems like a great distance, but really it's only about eight to 10 miles to uh, cross the river and you're in all of a sudden this other area known as Johnson County. And I've invited uh, guests and been, been fortunate to have visitors come from that area over to our church as well. And I, I find it interesting when I mention the name Glenwood uh, out there to them that uh, sometimes conjures up another thought of something else. And this uh, one individual I was speaking to, I said, I'd like to invite you to come to our service at Glenwood. And this individual said, so you're meeting at the Glenwood Theater. And I, I said, no, the, the theater has been closed for a number of years here. And, uh, oh, that's right, it has been closed. But you know, they still got the sign out there as well. I said, yeah, I have seen that. It's over there by the Metcalf um, South Shopping Center. Yes, that was a great movie theater, they would say. And then they start talking about movies they've seen there. So by the grace of God, able to bring the conversation back and was successful, of course, in inviting that person to come to church. And then also, uh, just a couple weeks ago, my wife and I are in a store, and uh, we, we come across a store clerk who is uh, from the Philippines. And we start uh, visiting about, uh, uh, about their life in the Philippines. Of course, my wife and I went with a, a church mission campaign, and we visited the Philippines. Of course, that was a nice bridge, so to speak, of communication to that uh, individual. And uh, through a conversation, uh, we invited them to come to Easter service here in just a couple weeks here, of which they gladly said yes. And so she said, what is the name of your church? And, and we said, Glenwood. And she said, Glenwood, I don't know Glenwood. Where is Glenwood? I know of Gladstone, but I don't know where Glenwood is. Where is Glenwood? And I uh, went on to say, well, it's located here. And I made a brief description. And she still tried to ponder Glenwood. I just have not heard that name. But by the grace of God, my wife being the great uh, spiritual uh, person to help bring someone to come to church, uh, was great to continue the conversation. And she's uh, committed to come to our church. So after that conversation was over on the ride home, I was just kind of thinking to myself, what would it be if I could have described to that uh, individual that we've invited uh, our new church name? And of course, the, the salesperson inside of me <laughs> always comes out and I start thinking in my mind, well, what would I have said? So here's a brief little explanation of what I, I might have said. Ma'am, my wife and I would like to invite you to come to our church this Easter Sunday. Our church is called Life Bridge Baptist Church. And just like there is a bridge that gets you from north of the river to south of the river, there's also a name of our church meaning bridge, which has a lot to do with the fact that when you come to our church, we're going to exclaim and proclaim 
the Christ is the way to God, that Christ becomes that bridge to acceptance with peace with God. And once we trust Christ as Savior, he offers to us a new life. So our name being Life Bridge is a church where we're going to proclaim and explain and exclaim with excitement the good news of Jesus Christ. We're going to continue to follow that mission purpose, and we would like to have you come to Life Bridge Baptist Church on Easter morning. And as a result of that, of course, with you coming, let me tell you where we're located. We're just up the street from Mackin Park. We're a few blocks uh, to the west of the I-29, I-35 split. And if you're familiar with North Oak, we're just a few blocks to the uh, west of North Oak, at 37th and North Oak. So we would like to have you come. Well, that is how I envisioned how I would say that. And of course, that's the great thing about this name. It has a lot to do with the opportunity of sharing and showing Christ to others and using that name for that purpose. I believe that God continues to want to use this church to serve as a continued outreach in our community, whether that's just in the local community, the local neighborhood, or the entire city, or again, the entire world. Today is the opportunity to take action and to take an opportunity to share your vote for the new name. I thank you for having an opportunity to share. Thank you. Well, Pastor Bruce is going to be continuing in his series, uh, Daniel Thriving in Babylon and Living for God in a cultural, Culture of Hostility. So if you would uh, turn with me to uh, Daniel chapter 6, which is uh, page 505 in your pew Bibles, if you're following along there, and, um, and, and read with me. It pleased Darius to set over the kingdom 120 satraps to be over the whole kingdom, and over these three governors of whom Daniel was one, that the satraps might give account to them so that the king would suffer no loss. Then this Daniel distinguished himself above the governors and satraps because an excellent spirit was in him, and the king gave thought to setting him over the whole realm. So the governors and satraps sought to find some charge against Daniel concerning the kingdom, but they could find no charge or fault because he was faithful, nor was there any error or fault found in him. These men said, we shall not find any charge against Daniel unless we find it against him concerning the law of his God. So the governors and the satraps thronged before the king and said to him, King Darius, live forever. All the governors of the kingdom, the administrators, the satraps, the counselors, and the advisors have consulted together to establish a royal statute and to make a firm decree that whoever petitions any god or man for 30 days except for you, O king, shall be cast into the den of lions. Now, O king, establish the decree and sign the writing so that it cannot be changed according to the law of the Medes and Persians, which does not alter. Therefore, King Darius signed the written decree. Now, when Daniel knew that the writing was signed, he went home. And in his upper room, with his, word, with his windows open toward Jerusalem, he knelt down on his knees three times that day and prayed and gave thanks before his God, as was his custom since early days. Then these men assembled and found Daniel praying and making supplication before his God. And they went before the king and spoke concerning the king's decree. Have you not signed a decree that every man who petitions any God or man within 30 days except you, O king, shall be cast into the den of lions? The king answered and said, This thing is true according to the law of the Medes and Persians, which does not alter. So they answered and said before the king, That Daniel who is one of the captives of Judah, does not show due regard for you, O king, or for the decree that you have signed, but makes his petition three times a day. And the king, when he heard these words, was greatly displeased with himself. And he set his heart on Daniel to deliver him. And he labored till the going down of the sun to deliver him. Then these men approached the king and said to the king, Know, O king, that it is the law of the Medes and Persians that no decree or statute which the king establishes may be changed. So the king gave the command, and they brought Daniel and cast him into the den of lions. But the king spoke, saying to Daniel, Your God, whom you serve continually, he will deliver you. Then a stone was brought and laid on the mouth of the den, and the king sealed it with his own signet ring and with the signets of his lords, that the purpose concerning Daniel might not be changed. Now, the king went to his palace and spent the night fasting, and no musicians were brought before him. Also, his sleep went from him, 
Then the king arose very early in the morning and went in haste to the den of lions. And when he came to the den, he cried out with a lamenting voice to Daniel. The king spoke, saying to Daniel, Daniel, servant of the living God, has your God, whom you serve continually, been able to deliver you from the lions? Then Daniel said to the king, O king, live forever. My God sent his angel and shut the lion's mouth so that they have not hurt me because I was found innocent before him. And also, O king, I have, not, I have done no wrong before you. Now the king was exceedingly glad for him and commanded that they should take Daniel up out of the den. So Daniel was taken up out of the den and no injury whatsoever was found on him because he believed in his God. And the king gave the command, and he brought those men who had accused Daniel, and they cast them into the den of lions, them, their children, and their wives. And the lions overpowered them and broke all their bones in pieces before they ever came to the bottom of the den. Then King Darius wrote, To all peoples, nations, and languages that dwelt in all the earth, peace be multiplied to you. I make a decree that in every dominion of my kingdom, men must tremble and fear before the God of Daniel. For he is the living God, and steadfast forever. His kingdom is one which shall not be destroyed, and his dominion shall endure to the end. He delivers and rescues, and he works signs and wonders in heaven and on earth. Who has delivered Daniel from the power of the lions? So this Daniel prospered in the reign of Darius and in the reign of Cyrus the Persian. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father God, we come to you in the name of Jesus, and we thank you so much that you are so good and so powerful. And we thank you that you um, are the one that makes it possible for us to have a relationship with you. And, and God, that you are faithful to us, even when we're faithless to you. God, just um, bless Bruce this, this morning and speak through him and help us to have open ears and open minds and open hearts and for us to apply them, what we learn from you today. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, a few years ago, there was an article in the Smithsonian Magazine by a journalist who hiked into the steaming jungles of New Guinea to spend a few days with a tribe of cannibals. It was a risky expedition. In fact, Dutch missionaries on the border of the tribe's territory wouldn't enter because it was so hostile. The cannibals considered outsiders to be ghost demons. Still, the journalist traveled up a winding river and visited the tribe. He survived, of course, but said after hearing them describe their gruesome practice, it took him a long time to get to sleep his first night. Well, I guess so. But as hair-raising as a night among cannibals might have been, imagine spending the night with lions. Hungry lions. That's the account we have here in Daniel chapter 6. One of the, the most famous chapters in all the Bible. In fact, it's probably the best known story in all of the Bible. What we refer to as Daniel in the lion's den. It's one of those stories that has encouraged the people of God for thousands of years. And, and why shouldn't it? The story is filled with unexpected twists and turns. The, the good guy escapes the lions and the bad guys are eaten by the lions. And along the way, we learn something about Daniel. We learn the secret of his success. Somehow, he managed to not only survive, but also thrive in Babylon. That point is a good place to start. Because as Christ followers... We live in a world of spiritual hostility where the temptation to compromise our own faith is with us every day. Listen, the world doesn't want its conscience pricked, and it certainly doesn't reward those who dare to stand up for their faith in God. And so today, standing up for Christ, living for God, often means ostracism, ridicule, and scorn, and often leads to tension at home or at school or even in the workplace. Sometimes it even means persecution and death, especially in other parts of the world. And this is why, then. The story we're going to look at this morning, the story we call Daniel in the lion's den, is so practical, it's so relevant for us even today. 
In fact, notice what we're going to learn. It's here in your notes. It's coming up on the screen. Daniel shows us that it is possible, that it's more than possible to live for God in a culture that is hostile toward Christ followers, even if it means being thrown to the lions. The story of Daniel and the lion's den reminds us that there is a spiritual battle raging all around us. In fact, according to 1 Peter 5.8, the devil himself is like a roaring lion who would devour us if he could. And Daniel knew that he lived in an exceedingly hostile world, a world filled with lions, not all of whom are caged in dens. Yet at the same time, Daniel also knew something else. He knew who was ultimately in control. He knew that his God was sovereign over even the most fearsome dangers that roamed this world. And so as a result, Daniel was able to experience this profound peace in the midst of his trials and tribulations, even in the lion's den. Now, before we jump into the lion's den with Daniel, let me just... uh, highlight two facts as we enter into the story here. First of all, Daniel is now a very old man. In fact, he came to Babylon as a teenager, if you remember back in the first lesson in Daniel chapter 1, and all his adult life has been spent serving various pagan kings. And he is now at this stage here in Daniel 6, he's probably around 80 years old or even over the age of 80. Daniel's also now serving under a new king by the name of Darius, who rules over a new kingdom, the Medo-Persian Empire. The kings have changed, but the spiritual challenge is still the same. In fact, it's the same for us even today in our culture, living for God in a culture of hostility. So how do we do that? How is that possible? Well, let me highlight three applicational points here for us this morning. Number one faithfully live in the world with integrity. It starts there. As Daniel 6 opens, Daniel is once again about to be promoted to a very high office in this new kingdom. Evidently, King Darius recognized Daniel as a man of integrity, a man with this excellent spirit in him, and wanted to make him second in command over the entire kingdom. And that's when the intrigue begins. Daniel Verse 4, it says, So the governors and satraps sought to find some charge against Daniel concerning the kingdom. But they could find no charge or fault. Why? Well, because Daniel was faithful, nor was there any error or fault found in him. In other words, Daniel's enemies started digging up some dirt on Daniel. But when they examined his life, they found that his integrity was above reproach. There was no dirt to find, even though they sought for it. No finer thing could be said than for your enemies to admit that they can find no dirt on your life. Verse 4 says that they could find no charge or fault in Daniel because he was faithful. What a statement. These were people who observed Daniel's life every day, day in and day out. They worked with him, and yet he was so completely free from corruption that his enemies could find nothing to use against him. Man, if someone set out to find a complaint about you, how hard would they have to look? What would they find? Could any of us survive that kind of scrutiny? Well, Daniel did. In fact, here's what Daniel's enemies found when they examined his life. First of all, they found that Daniel was faithful in his duties. From the very outset of his career in Babylon, Daniel was in this culture, but he was not of his culture. On the one hand, Daniel didn't withdraw from the Babylonian culture as far as he could in order to avoid being stained by it. On contrary, Daniel now served the empire faithfully for almost 70 years. And he was faithful in his duties. That's the first thing they found. But there was something else they found. They found that Daniel was faultless in his character. This word speaks of honesty. Now, it doesn't mean that Daniel was sinless. That is not true. But it does mean that he was free from corruption. He was blameless, in other words. He was above reproach. 
He does not steal, he doesn't lie, he doesn't manipulate or abuse people. Instead, Daniel governs with a set of moral values that cannot be corruptible or corrupted. Now this is rather remarkable. Daniel is an excellent example of being a faithful disciple in an unfaithful culture. In fact, faithful disciples live in such a way that when your enemies or your opponents seek to discredit them, they have, no, they have to go after the God that we serve. Daniel's enemies recognized that they would never find fault with him unless it was in regard to his God. What an incredible testimony from Daniel's enemies. He embodied the words of Jesus. Later on, when Jesus came and he says in Matthew 5, 16, let your light shine before men that they may see your good deeds and praise your Father in heaven. And that's exactly what Daniel's opponents found in him. But Daniel did have one, well, quote, flaw. And that is Daniel, number three here, was fervent in his prayers. In fact, Daniel was utterly predictable in his daily prayers. He prayed every day at the same time and in the same way. Now, perhaps some of you have heard this question. If you were arrested for being a Christian or a Christ follower, would there be enough evidence to convict you? Something to think about. Well, when they arrested Daniel for being a man of prayer, let me tell you, the evidence against him was overwhelming. Now, if you're Daniel's enemies, how would you disqualify a person with such high integrity such as Daniel? Well, Daniel's enemies knew that they had to shift from assassinating his character to attacking his allegiance to God. And so they approached the king. And they get him to pass this 30-day law forbidding anyone to pray except to King Darius. In effect, they tell the king, O king, how would you like to be God for a month? And of course, Darius buys the lie that you can become like God. Now we know that this lie is nothing new. This is a lie that originated all the way back in Genesis chapter 1, 2, and 3, in, with the serpent in the Garden of Eden. Darius is still buying the same lie, and so he signs the law into effect. And it wasn't a, that hard of a sell for Daniel's enemies. After all, this law appealed to the king's pride. I mean, who doesn't want to be godlike? Who doesn't want to have people worship you? We all do. And of course, the king had no idea Daniel was intent, the intended target. But make no mistake. These governors, these satraps, these opponents of Daniel, they knew that Daniel would break the law. They knew he would keep on praying to his God. And this is how you disqualify a faithful disciple like Daniel. Notice this in your notes. Daniel's accusers created this intentional conflict or this intentional clash between the law of man and the law of God. And as a result, Daniel has a choice, and choices have consequences. Here's a question to think about. How did Daniel's accusers, how did they know about his commitment to God? How did these governors, how did these satraps know to engineer this type of strategy against Daniel? Well, they knew because Daniel's commitment to live for God was public. wasn't private. It was public. That's how they knew. It was up front, and it was in the center, and Daniel didn't try to hide his commitment as a follower of God. Daniel took a public stand for God, and this stand was consistent for 70 years, beginning as a teenager with King Nebuchadnezzar, and now as an old man with King Darius. They also knew that there were some things that Daniel was willing to die for, and one of them was his commitment to his God. They knew that if Daniel had to choose between obedience to his God and obedience to the king, loyalty to his God would come first. And so once again, what we see here in Daniel's life is both challenging, but also very convicting for us as Christ followers today. Daniel's enemies 
Listen, they were totally confident that he would rather die than disobey his God. They knew that he would sooner go to the lion's den than give up his practice of daily prayer. Would any of our family, how many of our friends would say that about us? Never mind our enemies. Oh, that our commitment to live for God would be so obvious, it would be so upfront to people that they would know where we stand in this world that our lives are committed to living for our Lord. Like Daniel, may we commit to faithfully live in this world with integrity for all to see. And when we make this commitment, then may we also make a commitment, number two, to diligently depend on the Lord in prayer. Put yourself in Daniel's shoes here just for a moment. What do you do when you discover that your enemies have passed a law aimed at one person, and you are that person. It's like walking around with a bullseye on your back. How you respond at that point tells a great deal about your character as well as your commitment to the Lord. Now, in light of the king's law, how should Daniel respond? Well, there are a number of different ways in which Daniel could have responded to this 30-day law. You or I might have rushed before the king and tried to protest the unfairness of the new law, or we might go home in tears and complain to our family and friends about it and how unfair it is. But Daniel, he could have simply also closed the windows when he prayed so no one would see him. That was certainly an option. Or he could have said, I'll just pray in my heart and no one will know the better. But Daniel is less concerned, get this, with his own personal comfort than he is with maintaining his dependence on God. He doesn't lead a protest. He doesn't lead a rebellion. He doesn't even seek to get the law overturned. He simply continues to do what he has always done for 70 years. He prays to his God. Daniel 6.10 tells us exactly how Daniel responded. Look at it. Now when Daniel knew that the writing was signed, he went home, and in his upper room, with his windows open toward Jerusalem, he knelt down on his knees three times that day and prayed and gave thanks before his God, as was his custom since early days. This is the secret of Daniel's success. Right here, summarized in one verse. Daniel's life is defined by regular, intentional prayer. Now, there was no biblical command that required Daniel to pray in this way. To face Jerusalem, to kneel, to pray three times a day. But he had made a habit of doing so since he was a teenager. And as a result, what is remarkable in Daniel's behavior is not so much that this crisis of the new law drove him to his knees, but rather that it didn't break his regular routine of prayer. It didn't alter his routine. This reminds us that faithfulness doesn't begin when things are difficult. Rather, it is revealed during times of trials. I like how this author put it. When you cannot pray, that's when you had better pray. Note the last phrase in verse 10. As was his custom since early days. In other words, Daniel's life has been defined by daily prayer, let's say for perhaps 75 years. Each day was always the same. Wherever he was, he stopped to pray. A 75-year habit is pretty hard to break. For Daniel, prayer was like breathing, and he wasn't about to stop praying now just because his life was threatened. And I'm impressed by the fact that Daniel actually gets down on his knees to pray. Not that you have to do it that way, but it's the fact that Daniel chose this posture of prayer for himself. I believe it was an act of humility on Daniel's part. Remember, Daniel has a lot of qualities about him that make most people arrogant. 
Think about it. What were his qualities? You go back to Daniel chapter 1, and we are told that as a young man, as a teenager, he has good looks, he has intelligence, he has ability, he has skills, he has wisdom, and now he has position and he has power. And in our culture, when somebody has all that, what are they? Nine times out of ten, they are arrogant. Daniel has a lot going for him that could have made him very arrogant. But the antidote for Daniel was prayer. I mean, how does a person with all that not become proud? Through prayer. Every day, he gets down on his knees as an act of submission to his God, an act of humility, and he humbly prays in dependence on the Lord. One author writes, one of the ultimate acts of pride is prayerlessness. Now that stops us cold in our tracks right now. That freezes us in our seats. One of the acts of pride, ultimate acts, is prayerlessness. It says, I don't need you, God. I don't need your help. I don't need your wisdom. I don't need your insight. I have all the human abilities. I have all of the intellect that I need. I have all the reasoning powers that I need. I can do it on my own. I don't need you, God. So why would I pray to you? Daniel was a very gifted man who could have tried to do it on his own, but instead he depended on the Lord in prayer. One writer remarked that Daniel's bedroom was the real lion's den. That's where the battle was fought and won. By committing himself to continuing in prayer, he won the only battle that mattered. When he won there, the real lions were no problem. You see, we think when we read this story, we think the miracle was that Daniel survived the night with the lions. And yes, that was a miracle, make no doubt about it. But the greater miracle in the story was that Daniel continued to depend on God in prayer when his life was on the line. Which brings us to point number three when it comes to living for God in a culture of hostility. Completely trust God as your deliverer. Since Daniel prayed three times a day, it probably didn't take a great deal of skill to catch him in the act. Now, this kind of makes you wonder then why God didn't just close the eyes of Daniel's enemies like he was going to later close the mouths of the lions. God surely could have done that. God could have closed their eyes so that Daniel could have prayed unhindered. God's more than powerful enough to do that. He's already proved his power earlier in these chapters. But God's purpose for Daniel was not to deliver him from trials, but to deliver him through the trials, just as he did with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the fiery furnace. Now, Daniel's enemies, let me tell you, they waste no time once they caught him praying, reminding the king of the new law and the consequences for his disobedience. We see their manipulation right here in verses 11 through 13. Look at it with me one more time. It says, Then these men assembled, and they found Daniel praying and making supplication before his God. And they went before the king. And they spoke concerning the king's decree. Have you not signed a decree that every man who petitions any god or man within 30 days except you, O king, shall be cast into the den of lions? And of course the king answered and says, Yes, the thing is true according to the law of the Medes and Persians, which does not alter. So they answered and said before the king, That Daniel, who is one of the captives from Judah, does not show due regard for you, O king or for the decree that you have signed, but makes his petition three times a day. King Darius, at this moment, realizes that he's been tricked. He's been bamboozled. And now he is distressed over what will happen to Daniel. You see, this king, he actually likes Daniel. 
And he immediately begins seeking loopholes in the law to rescue Daniel from the fate that the law dictated. This king has good intentions, but he is now powerless to save Daniel from the fate of his law. He has no choice but to follow through with the law. And Daniel's enemies now remind the king in verse 15, look at it. Then these men approached the king and said to the king, Know, O king, that it is the law of the Medes and the Persians that no decree or statute which the king establishes may be changed. So the king abandoned Daniel to his fate in the lion's den. But what's interesting, he does so with hopes for the best. He wishes, this is incredible here, he actually wishes Daniel well with these words at the end of verse 16. He tells Daniel, your God, whom you serve continually, he will deliver you. This king has more faith than a lot of Christ followers have even today. This king, get this, he actually shifts his appeal from the law that he just signed and trying to find loopholes in it to the saving mercy of Daniel's God. What a testimony this is to the reality of Daniel's faith in God. And so Daniel is now thrown into the lion's den, which in those days was a, this huge pit, normally dug into the ground, with a huge boulder placed over the top so that there could be no escape. It was barbaric, but it was effective. It was an effective form of capital punishment. No one ever got out alive. And certainly not an old man like Daniel, or so they thought, Daniel is sealed in what is, might as well be his tomb, and yet he has a peace. This is astounding about Daniel. He has this peace that comes from resting in the unchangeable character and promises of his God. In fact, one of the great ironies in this story is the contrast between King Darius and Daniel during the night. That night. The king didn't sleep at all, but Daniel slept like a baby. The king tossed and turned, paced the floor, refused all offers of entertainment, even refused to eat. But at dawn, he rushed to the lion's den, crying out in anguish in verse 20, Daniel, Daniel, servant of the living God, has your God, whom you serve continually, been able to deliver you from the lions? It's, it's a question of hope. Meanwhile, Daniel sounds as calm as if he had just spent the night in his own bed when he tells the king in verse 21, O king, live forever. My God sent his angel and shut the lion's mouth so that they have not hurt me because I was found innocent before him. And also, O king, I have done no wrong before you. And then we see the king's response in verse 23. Then the king was exceedingly glad for him and commanded that they should take Daniel up out of the den. And so Daniel was taken up out of the den and no injury whatever was found on him because he believed in his God. Now it's clear that contrary to all expectations, Daniel spent a far more comfortable night in the lion's den than Darius did in the king's palace. What a stark contrast. What a very stark contrast this provides. Do you realize King Darius had at his disposal every pleasure that the ancient world had to offer, and yet he cannot enjoy any of them? Now that is a description of so many people living in our world today. Here in America, we have some of the most modern conveniences ever given to us, afforded to us. And yet, how many people, when they go to bed at night, are so restless and experience no peace? They are in turmoil in their hearts because their lives are lived apart from God. There is no peace without God. And yet our world continues to 
search after and try to find this and chase after that for the joys and the pleasures and the peace and the fulfillment and the meaning and everything else. And it always comes up empty. And yet you look at Daniel. He had nothing in the lion's den except what? The very presence of his God. And yet he enjoyed a peaceful night's rest. This shows us that true peace does not come from the possessions and the prestige and the glitz and the glamour and the power that we accumulate, but it comes from the presence and grace of God in our lives. This story also provides another stark contrast as well that we must not miss. Please don't, don't miss to see it. And that is in the lion's den here. God vindicated Daniel's innocence by delivering him from the lion's. And the contrast is, while Daniel's accusers were delivered to the lions. You see, King Darius, he is delighted that Daniel's God delivered him from the lions. But now, he turns his attention to the corrupt officials who falsely accused Daniel. You see, they had hoped, this select few of governors and satraps, these opponents of Daniel, these opponents of God himself, they hope to expand their power by manipulating man's law to be in direct conflict with God's law for the purpose of murdering God's innocent servant. Therefore, according to verse 24, look at it with me. The king gave the command, and they brought those men who had accused Daniel and they cast them into the den of lions, them, their children, and their wives. Which just reminds us that our sin, listen, our, our choices in life never affect just us. Every decision you make impacts others. And sometimes God allows the consequences of our sins to affect even others as well. And we see it here with the wives and the children. And the lions overpowered them and broke all their bones in pieces before they ever came to the bottom of the den. Now, I never saw a flannel graph of this. I've never seen a coloring book of this right here. There is no PowerPoint for this scene in God's Word. There's no deliverance from the lions for these men, women, and children. This is not... Get this, this is not prescriptive of how Christ followers respond to their enemies, though. This is not how we respond. What you see taking place here, this is King Darius enacting justice according to the same law they tried to manipulate to kill Daniel. Why? Why was Daniel spared by the lions? And why was his enemies consumed by the lions? Well, in verse 22, Daniel tells the king that the lions were unable to hurt him because he was found what before his God? He was found innocent before God. Daniel was simply living up to his name, which means God is my judge. And God had judged Daniel not guilty. And so he was delivered from the lion's den without a scratch, whereas Daniel's enemies had been judged by the king. And they had been found guilty, therefore they were delivered to the lions. Proverbs 28.10 reminds us, Whoever leads the upright along an evil path will fall into their own trap, but the blameless will receive a good inheritance. What an incredible demonstration of God's power and justice. Sarah, will you wake up my son for me? Jack, you need to sit up and listen. What an incredible demonstration of God's power. What an incredible demonstration of God's justice. I want to leave you with three life lessons for modern day Daniels who find themselves facing lions today. First, we can risk it all to live for God knowing that our God will ultimately deliver us. We can risk it all to live for God, knowing that our God will ultimately deliver us. Daniel shows us that if you resolve in your heart to live for God, you can do it 
even while living in Babylon. Listen, if God can deliver Daniel from the lion's den, he can surely deliver you from whatever you're facing. The same God who delivered Daniel is sovereign over those who plot against you. And he is sovereign over the lines who surround you. And so risk it all to live for God, knowing that our God can deliver you from whatever is troubling you this very moment. Number two, Christ followers who live for God should expect opposition. Please understand something. Doing right is no guarantee everything will go right. Daniel's godliness did not win him friends on all sides. In fact, it made him powerful enemies. Isn't that always the way it is? Ever since Cain killed Abel, there has been a hostility in this world between God's people and those around them, a hostility that sometimes comes to violent expression. The truth is that we as Christ followers, we live in a world toward Christianity that is hostile. And we need to be prepared for that reality. Paul told Timothy in 2 Timothy 3.12, everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be what? Persecuted. And I sometimes wonder if we expect the opposite though. That our lives will run smoothly, our lives will run successfully as long as we are faithfully following the Lord. But this is a false narrative. Bible tells us that persecution comes in a variety of forms and from a variety of directions. And so as Christ followers, we need to understand that this world in which we touch and feel and see, in which we work and play and live, this world here is not our home. And therefore, we shouldn't be surprised when we're not welcomed here. When Daniel's enemies, when they brought their charge against him to the king, did you notice what they called Daniel? You go back to verse 13. Look what it says. They say, that Daniel. That Daniel king, who is one of the captives from Judah. Now that's amazing because Daniel by this time has lived in Babylon for how many years? 70 years. They meant it as a slur. They meant it as an insult that after all these years of living in Babylon, Daniel was still considered what? An outsider. And therefore his deepest loyalties lie somewhere else. Not with the culture of Babylon. Which was true, because after all these years in Babylon, it was not his home. Even though Daniel served faithfully under several kings, Daniel was nothing more and nothing less than just a sojourner in Babylon. He was just passing through. He knew his citizenship ultimately was where? It was in the kingdom of God. And folks, that is true for us. Number three, God can use us to impact unlikely people when we are faithful to him. This story emphasizes the powerful impact that Daniel's integrity had on King Darius. And while it is true that many of Daniel's co-workers envied him, they plotted to kill him, it's also true that Daniel made a huge impact on this king. In fact, King Darius is so impacted by the saving work of Daniel's God that he offers public praise to the God of Daniel. He declares that Daniel's God is the living God who endures forever. He is the God who rescues and saves, and his kingdom will endure forever. Listen, remember, remember this truth. You never know who is watching you. You never know who is watching you. Watching you at school, watching you at work, watching you in your homes, watching you in the neighborhood, even here at church. Watching how you live for God, watching how you relate to others, watching how you respond to the difficulties of life and the trials of life. Some, Darius has his eyes on you, and your godliness may be leading them pointing them to salvation in Jesus Christ, or your worldliness may be leading them far, far away from the hope that is found in Jesus Christ. Daniel's testimony, 
his faithfulness to his God led King Darius to confess that it was God who delivered Daniel from the power of the lion's den. But folks, as amazing as that is, we need to be saved from something far, far worse. And that is the pit of hell and the consequences of our own sins. And that's why we need the gospel of Jesus Christ. Notice this in your notes, the lion's den and the cross of Christ. Emerging from the lion's den here in Daniel 6, we see a foreshadow that points forward to the New Testament of the saving work of Jesus Christ to rescue us from our sin with his death and resurrection. Listen, the same God who rescued Daniel from the lions will rescue you from your sins if you will trust in his son, Jesus Christ. And those who do, those who trust in Jesus, you know what God says? We are counted as righteous in God's eyes. We are declared innocent, not guilty. And our sins are forgiven forever. And if that's what you need, if that's what you want, then run to the cross of Jesus Christ. Run to the cross and lay your sins on Jesus and your sins will be forgiven and you will receive new life, eternal life in Christ. This is God's promise to those who trust in Jesus as our Lord and Savior. I leave you with this last thought. Embrace the certainty of Daniel's faith in the living God who is mighty to save before it's too late. Let's pray. And here's a prayer that I pray for all of us. Heavenly Father, I do not ask for an easy road, but for the courage to walk the path that you set before us. And I thank you that our lives are in your hands and that we have nothing to fear because all our days are appointed by you. Lord, give us the faith of Daniel to live for you and may our lives be clear so that everyone will know that we belong to you. I do not pray for a den of lions, but we ask for courage to go there if that would be your will for our lives. And above all else, may you be glorified in our lives so that others will see Jesus in us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. We're going to sing just one chorus of invitation. Will you come to the Lord, run to the cross, and receive his forgiveness?